Now, of course, in any journey, right, as we've been talking about, good to know where you're going. It's good to consider when you'll get there, what time you'll leave, and some of the things you'll encounter along the way, some of the things we've been talking about already, right? Well, something else that's also important, I think, when we're considering a journey is not only where we're going, but how are we going to get there? Of course, that kind of loses today because it's real easy for us to jump in the car and head on out. But for some journeys, you know, well, are we going to rent a car? Are we going to buy a plane ticket? Are we going to take the bus? Or is it short enough? Does Tom and Jerry help us? Do we get a ride from somewhere else? Not only where we're going, but how we are going to get there. Now, for Jesus' last journey into Jerusalem, it's something that he considered as well. How was he going to make his last journey into Jerusalem? Well, he figured this merited a certain special accommodation. Now, of course, right, most of us understand that the time and the culture and the ideas and the way of doing things in the days of Jesus can be vastly different from today, right? Even so, that's true. Come on, a donkey? I think we get that. I think we can see what be um, unspectacular about making your way in town on a donkey. There's two things about that, though, that I think are important for us today that I want you to focus your mind on just for a few moments. And it has to do with what happens right before Jesus mounts the animal and what happens afterwards. Of course, Jesus sends his disciples out to go get this donkey, right? And if you know anything about animals, I think maybe then you can appreciate just how difficult that or interesting that task might have been. We're not talking some Clydesdale or some trained horse for a chariot. We're talking about a donkey that had never been ridden. Okay. <laughs> and then he brings this donkey, they bring this donkey back. And the disciples do something very specific. What do they do? take off their cloaks and they put them on the donkey and then Jesus sits. Now the reason why that's important for us to uh, think about is because then as Jesus is making his way on, guess what everybody else starts doing? Taking off their cloaks and throwing them on the ground. Now I read that and I've always thought about the image I had growing up either from TV or from whatever when, you know, somebody important, usually a uh, you know, some lady of some type of importance or whatever about her. She's walking across the street, and oh my goodness, as she comes to the curve, there's a puddle there, right? And then it's the, the gentleman, the valiant man who comes in to save her, right? What does he do? He whisks off his jacket and he lays it across that puddle, and then she can walk across, right? I always thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. Why couldn't she just and go like that? But there was something about this, you know, the man or whoever it was was going to, you know, prepare that way and she wouldn't have to, even though you still get wet, you might even fall, actually. Anyway, there's something about that. And I wonder if maybe the disciples somewhere along the line had the same idea in their mind and even the other people. Oh, gee, you can't just sit on that donkey. Here, let me set it up for you. Bad enough you're riding a donkey, brother. Come on, you know. And then as he's going down, these people... They throw off their cloaks, and then they've got 
you know, we do the palm branches, right? They got their branches and they're waving and they're throwing those down. In a way, uh, in a very big way that we can get, that can get lost on us sometimes, what they are doing is saying, here comes the king. Here comes our king. And in another way, what they're saying is, hey, 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 Rome, here we come. Caesar, watch out because we're coming to get you. It was their way of declaring Christ as king. Unfortunately, as many of us have heard before, their idea of what Christ the king was to be was different than Jesus' own idea of the kind of king he would be. We also remember he wept because of that. He wept because the people didn't understand that. And I might suggest that even today, we can be guilty of that, of setting Jesus up to be something that Jesus never said he was coming to do. But what's good for us to realize, though, I think, is that Jesus knew what he was going to Jerusalem for. He knew that even before Jerusalem, there would be people who would hear his message and not like him. There would be people who got him wrong and wanted him dead. I also tend to think that Jesus knew that there would be people knew that there would be people that misunderstood him but would love him to death. I.e. his disciples. Many times we read in the gospel accounts where they just don't get it. They love him, and they're with him, and they're following him, but they just don't get it. And instead of letting either of those people dictate what Jesus would do, instead of letting those who disagreed and who wanted him dead to dictate what he would say and how he would say it, instead of letting the people who misunderstood him but just loved him and all the, instead of letting them dictate who he was and what he would do, he came, he went to Jerusalem, and fulfilled what he came to do. Now, I think that's an important uh, principle for many of us in the church to consider because it's very easy, I think, to fall in this game of trying to find out who we are based on what other people are saying about us. Finding out who we are can be difficult. It can be painful. It can be lonely. It can also be exciting and rewarding. And some of us get to a point where we can kind of feel like, well, we kind of know who we are. We're kind of comfortable. We know about what we've been through. We know about what we've done, but still, I don't know. Because then it's really easy to fall into the next part where other people tell us who we are. Where we let others' attitudes or others' opinions dictate how we think or the way we say or what we do. And sometimes we can fall into this by allowing, if you've known anyone like this, you've ever had in life, maybe even sometimes we've done it where you know, our careers dictate who we are. Who we are is based on what other people think we do in the world. And that may be fine for a while, but then what happens when that job is gone? 
And sometimes we, we figure if we can get, I don't know, maybe just a few more square feet added on, that can show everybody that we're something else. Well, I don't know. And this isn't a conversation I'm sure that you haven't had before. People trying to find identity in their possessions and in the cars they drive. How many people are going to be sadly disappointed, or who were sadly disappointed, when Hummer decided that they wouldn't be making Hummers anymore? If that's where we find our identity. But then there's something else, and what sociologists call the looking glass sh- uh, self. Anyone ever heard of that? The looking glass is this. Who I am, how I see myself, how I interact. Because we all live in a world with people. I mean, everywhere you look, there's people. You just can't get rid of them, right? They're everywhere. So how I interact with everybody, the words I use, the way I speak, the things I do with my life, all these things all come back to, the theory says, of my perception of what your perception is of me. So in other words, what I say is based on what I think you think about me. Now that can be very rewarding, can't it? I mean, I could just think, everybody loves me. Uh Uh-oh. I think we could see how the opposite could work. And how damaging that can be. I mean, if you think about what that means, you know, we, we base what we think about ourselves by what we think somebody else thinks. So we start putting words and images in their minds, and they've never told us anything differently. But we see how damaging that can be. It's important for us to think when we are considering our journey. Patty, I forgot your mirror in the back, but it's back there that we are wonderfully created. But that sometimes in this journey, <laughs> when you're in the car, the mirrors can be very useful. You all got that mirror right there, right? And, you know, I, I, I thought it was pretty impressive when I first learned out, when I was learning how to drive, that you could push that little thing on the bottom, like when you drive at night. Anybody ever done that? I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. That mirror is useful. And then about the mirror that they have in the little visor, right? You, can, you know, it's about that big and everything you need to see. But sometimes, friends, the mirrors get bigger, don't they? And then you start to see maybe something else you didn't want to see or you were trying to forget. Like right? those kids, those mirrors scared me, the ones that were like regular, and then you flipped it over, like, whoa! That magnified, those, those freaked me out. And then you get these bigger mirrors where there you are. And you look at yourself. And, of course, you can see things that nobody else sees. You can see things that are on the inside that nobody else can feel. And sometimes that hurts. Because quite often we've allowed other people to tell us who we are. In Gloria's mom's church this past week, there was a young um, high school student. I believe she was a senior was involved in the cheerleading squad and had been for a couple of years. And one morning she woke up, she wasn't feeling well. She asked her mom if she could sleep in. Mom said, fine. Just a little while later, she went back in to wake her up, only to find her unresponsive. 
And what we're finding more and more out about her is that um, her quest to be the maybe perfect cheerleader or to look the certain way or to be the right weight or right size drove her to do certain things that her body just couldn't keep up with. Now, somebody could consider that and think, well, that poor girl, she just didn't know any better. I think the reality is we need to realize how we can encourage that kind of things. If that young girl felt like she couldn't get the applause and the cheers from everybody, if she didn't look a certain way, guess who's applauding and cheering? And there's many ways we can do that. You know, think about our children. And I don't think we mean anything by it, and I don't think it can be necessarily wrong, but when we only address our children, tell well, good boy, you did good. You know, maybe it's that child grows up and realizes that they're only good when they do something good, that they can't just be good in themselves. Or even our, our, our young girls, oh, you look very pretty today, so that the only time they can get a compliment is when they're doing something. And what about the opposite of that? Children who get to hear that they will never amount to anything. Children who get reminded that they weren't supposed to be here. Maybe these are extreme examples, but I think you get the point. How it is very easy to let other people dictate who we are. And I want to make a very powerful, give you a very powerful reminder this morning. I want you to know that you are a child of God. You were formed in God's image, and you are God's own. It doesn't matter if you don't know what somebody else knows. It doesn't matter if you haven't experienced what somebody else has already experienced. It doesn't matter if you don't look some way that somebody else does. It doesn't matter if you don't make as much money as somebody else does. It doesn't matter if you're involved in this and somebody else isn't. It doesn't matter the way you decide to dress yourself. It doesn't matter the way you decide to fix your hair. It doesn't matter who you decide to run with or who you decide to associate with. Friends, we are all created in God's And I want to give you this last word from Psalm 139 that Stephen read a few moments ago. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I'm not suggesting that there are times when maybe we don't act faithful or maybe there's times we get out of hand or we say anything and that we should disregard when people try to address that for us. That's not what I'm saying. That's a different conversation. But what I am saying is that I bet we don't realize how many people in the church who confess to, believe, to being children of God, how many of those people deal with and struggle with self-esteem issues? What it means to find identity and what it means to find ourselves and what it means to be a child of God. But just like the psalmist wrote, fearfully and wonderfully made. And how great are your works, God? Do you see what the psalmist is saying? God, you have made us, 
and we can be great. See, God sort of maybe in a way is saying, I have formed you in my image. Maybe when they see you, they're trying to tell you to see something else, but I want you to see what I see. And that is me. Friends, on this journey to hope, as we talked about, sometimes there are things that we need to leave behind weigh us down. And sometimes there are things that we need to remind ourselves of so that we can find the hope and the joy and the peace. And that is what we find living as children of God. In Jesus' name.